Hi, welcome to Benchtime Stories, a podcast where Stanford graduate students tell you stories of scientific discoveries from where the hard work actually happens, the lab bench. Here, we follow discoveries from their inception to their fruition. I'm Nikki Turan. And I'm Michelle Peng. Today, we bring you the story of how a protein from a humble single-celled algae shaped one of the most widely used research techniques to control specific brain cells, also known as neurons. This technique, called optogenetics, was first demonstrated in 2005, and since then there has been an explosion of studies using it to ask all sorts of questions about how our brains work that could not have been tested before. Name any question you have about the brain, like how do we remember things? How do our brains control sleep? Or what is the cause of mental health disorders? And someone probably has done or is doing an experiment to test that very question using optogenetics. So how is it that something from algae ended up being used to control the brain? Why did anyone think of creating this as a tool? And, and how did they do that? And now that optogenetics is a well-established method, what are its implications for answering big questions in neuroscience and medicine? In the early 2000s, a team at Stanford led by Carl Dyseroth, Edward Boyden, and Feng Zhang designed an experiment to put a protein from a single-celled algae into some neurons, and then shining some light on them to try and activate them. Dyseroth's team had no idea at the time how likely it was that this experiment could even be done or whether it could work, and there were already other ways to stimulate the brain that didn't require a somewhat complicated setup involving light or genetics. So before we get into the details of how they put together this set of experiments, Let's step back for some context on why they wanted to develop this method, now called optogenetics. So I'm a geneticist. Usually when we test how important genes are in humans, we do this by turning them on and off. Optogenetics has the word genetics in it, but it's not something I've ever used. Well, the idea of turning things on or off is totally on point. When we want to look at how important something is in biology, whether that's a gene or a neuron, we often try to look at what happens when we get rid of it or artificially activate it. Optogenetics uses genetic techniques to put genes in certain neurons that aren't normally there, and then it uses light to turn the whole neuron on or off. That's where the opto and optogenetics comes from. It means vision or light. The idea is that if we can turn on or off neurons we're interested in, we might be able to figure out what they do and how they influence behavior. Wait, using light to stimulate the brain? That sounds really hard. Is using light really the easiest, fastest way to do this? Well, you're right that getting the neuron to respond to light isn't trivial, but once you've got it working, it's better than a lot of other existing methods for two main reasons. First, neurons work very, very quickly on the timescale of milliseconds. And second, the human brain is made up of about 100 billion neurons that can be really different from each other in what they look like and what they do. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of different pictures of neurons. Some of them look like sunflowers with small roots on one end, a big stalk, and then petals coming off a round part up top. But then other ones look like gnarly oak trees. They've got gnarly roots going down in one direction, a big fat trunk, and branches going up the other way. Yeah, exactly. That's a really great visual. And that's only two of many different types of neurons. Most brain stimulation techniques can't stimulate neurons quickly enough to mimic what happens in real brains, or they can't stimulate a set of neurons you're interested in without also affecting its neighbors. For a long time, scientists have studied brains by looking at different brain regions. Like, you've probably seen a picture of a brain with different brain regions labeled, and maybe you've even learned some of the names of those regions. Like the hippocampus. I remember that one was named because it looked kind of like a seahorse, which in Greek is hippocampus. The actual reason, though, I remember that is because my professor told me it helps you get around campus. And it has something to do with locations or remembering things. That's right. But looking like a seahorse doesn't tell you much about what it does, right? Do you know how scientists figured out the hippocampus had to do with memory? 
by doing some kind of experiment by turning it on and off in a controlled setting? Right. There are a few different ways to turn these regions on or off, so to speak. You can surgically remove the hippocampus of a rat and then test whether it gets worse at learning a new maze. Obviously, you can't do something like this in humans, but sometimes humans get brain injuries or need to have parts of their brain surgically removed to treat epilepsy or tumors. When this happens, scientists can then study how the people change afterwards. There was a famous epilepsy patient by the name of H.M. who had parts of his brain removed, including his hippocampus, and unfortunately, he could no longer form new memories after the surgery. These types of data are too crude to tell us how the hippocampus actually forms new memories, but they did show that it's a required component in memory formation. Yeah, but in those examples, you're only turning parts of the brain off. What about turning them back on? Good question. So neurons in the brain send signals through a series of electrical impulses, so you can actually stimulate parts of the brain by shocking it. This can be done in animals or in patients who have electrodes implanted in their brain for certain medical treatments. Neurons talk to each other using chemical signals as well, so you can use certain chemicals to stimulate the brain. But even though we've learned a lot about the brain through these studies, all of these methods tend to hit many different types of neurons that are all overlapping with each other. That's crazy. That's like trying to diffuse a bomb with a pair of garden shears. Really what you need is a technique so you can hone in on a single wire with a tiny pair of scissors. Yeah, that's right. So for decades, we've basically only had those rusty old garden shears, but now with optogenetics, we have that small pair of scissors. When parts of the brain are damaged or stimulated electrically or chemically, many different types of neurons are affected all at once, and you can't be sure which ones are really causing any behavioral changes you see. But with optogenetics, you can be a lot more specific and really tease apart what those different types of neurons are doing by only putting the light switch in neurons with a specific genetic signature. Okay, so we know that optogenetics lets us diffuse that bomb with those tiny scissors by using genetics to label specific populations of neurons with this quote-unquote light switch. But using light to turn neurons on and off very quickly is like a complex thing. What do you actually mean by this physical light switch? Well, people considered a few different options, but what Dysteroth's team ended up trying was a light-activated protein from a single-celled algae called Chlamydomonas. Light is a pretty important part of the environment, so organisms ranging from bacteria to algae to animals have evolved the ability to detect light through proteins called opsins. I guess that makes sense. Animals rely on vision to get around, to find food, to avoid being food, and microbes that are photosynthetic. Well, they care a lot about where the sun is because they need it for energy. But how do opsins turn neurons on and off, and why didn't they just use the opsins that humans already have? Well, that comes down to how opsins work. So humans do indeed have opsins, but they have a few different moving parts which we won't get into, whereas microbial opsins are much simpler. There's just one part that lives in the cell membrane, the barrier that keeps the inside of the cell in and the outside out. These microbial opsins connect the inside of the cell with the outside world. But they aren't just holes in the membrane that let anything in or out of the cell indiscriminately. Specifically, opsins only open when they detect light, and they only let ions in or out. So the opsins are like bouncers. Only when the club has space do they let people through. And then only the people who are wearing appropriate club attire. Except they let ions in instead of appropriately dressed people. And what do ions have to do with brains? Ions are atoms that have a positive or negative charge. You're probably familiar with electrolytes like sodium or potassium in your sports drinks. And you need these electrolytes because they provide your body with ions, and your cells rely on ions for many functions. Our cells have all sorts of ion channels in their membrane that control whether ions can go in or out. Opsins are just one of many types of ion channels. Okay, I'm familiar with other kinds of ion channels. I know that capsaicin, the thing that makes spicy food spicy, binds to and opens an ion channel. So it takes a signal, the presence of the small molecule capsaicin, and turns that into a flow of positive ions. 
But then how does that flow of ions in one part of the cell cause anything else to happen? So it turns out that these ion flows are actually how neurons transmit signals. Neurons are what scientists call polar, which basically means they're like a one-way street. The main function of a neuron is to receive information from upstream neurons at one end, called the dendrites, and then relay it to downstream neurons at the other end, called the axon terminal. Okay, so I can imagine that gnarly oak tree as something that has its roots sucking up water, passing it up the trunk, where it's going to collect before going to the leaves at the end of the branches. But the water's not going to go the other way around. I've heard that a giraffe has a neuron in its neck that's 15 feet long. How in the heck does it get a signal from one side to the other? Well, that's a really good question, because if neurons waited for some chemical signal to diffuse from one end of the cell to the other, it would take forever and brains would probably not be able to do anything, especially not in the giraffe. That's why they pass on information electrically using the flow of ions into and out of cells, which happens much faster. The key is that ion channels only let particular ions pass through, and they can only open in specific situations. We've talked a lot about ion channels only letting ions in at specific times, but I don't get how this lets us send messages from one side of the neuron to the other. Yeah, so let's walk through the process a little bit. So say a neuron is getting a signal from an upstream neuron. Maybe your taste neurons got a flow of positive ions from the capsaicin, and need to tell the next neuron to signal to your brain to grab some milk. That upstream neuron can sort of poke the next neuron, causing it to open some ion channels as well. And that poke is actually the release of a chemical signal, a different one than the capsaicin, but still a signal that binds to and opens ion channels. If enough capsaicin-induced neurons poke our neuron, or if one capsaicin-induced neuron pokes our neuron over and over, more and more ion channels open. And eventually, the neuron reaches a threshold and is able to generate a very, very large electrical signal that propagates all the way to the end of the axon terminal. This is like a domino effect where that first small flow of ions tells other types of ion channels to open and let in even more ions, which triggers even more channels to open. It's this domino effect that moves the signal quickly, and we can call this large electrical signal an action potential. The action potential causes the neuron to release chemical signals to the next neuron, poking the next neuron downstream, and so on. So that was a lot of steps. But I guess my TLDR is that a neuron can pass on a message by opening ion channels in their membranes. Domino effects of these ion channels make things go really fast. And that means that if we can put a light-activated ion channel inside a neuron, we can trigger the action potentials using light and have that propagate off. Yeah, that's a good way to summarize how neurons work. And it's exactly why Dyseroth's team wondered whether you could put opsins into neurons to stimulate them. The way you've set this up, it sounds almost too convenient to be true. They really could just flop this ion channel in that they can control by light and make neurons work? Yeah, it definitely kind of sounds that way, and there was some luck involved. But the opsin from Clementomonas, called channel rhodopsin, wasn't the first one to be tested. Several groups had previously experimented with other ion channels, such as animal opsins, but they turned out to be slower and more difficult to use. Another idea which has been proposed, but is currently too difficult to implement, was to attach tiny magnetic particles to ion channels and to use magnetic stimulation to open the channels. There was some indication that channel rhodopsin in particular might work well, though, thanks to research by biophysicists Georg Nagel and Peter Hegemann, who identified the chlamydomonas channel rhodopsin genes after about 15 years of research. They had known for a while that chlamydomonas could let in positive ions in response to light, which helps the algae move toward light sources to collect energy. In 2002, they found the genes, and then they showed that animal cells and human kidney cells were capable of making channel rhodopsins. This was an important step in opening the door for its use in animals. It makes sense that being able to show that you can grow this channel rhodopsin in human cells is really important because algae and animals are really different. Animal cells might not be able to build the channel rhodopsins and put it in the right place, 
And even if they could do that, it might not work the same way it normally does in algae. Or if they're really unlucky, the channel rhodopsins might have made the cells really sick. And neurons are even more finicky than your average cell. Yeah, exactly. So that's where things were when Hageman's team shared the gene sequence with Dyseroth's team. And Dyseroth's team went on to show in their 2005 paper that they were able to get the neurons in a dish to make channel rhodopsins. And additionally, they could use light to get these neurons to make action potentials. This was really exciting because the channel rhodopsins could have been way too weak to be able to start that domino effect, or they could have been too strong for the neurons to tolerate. But they turned out to be just right. After playing around with how they delivered the light, they were able to get these action potentials to happen at reliable times. This set of experiments only shows that optogenetics can get a single neuron to look like they're firing an action potential. How did they show that the neuron could actually talk to other neurons and pass on information? That's a good question. So another type of experiment you can do with neurons in a dish is to stimulate one neuron with electricity, or light in this case, and then look at another neuron that is next door to see what kind of messages it's receiving. This is what was done in the 2005 study, where they showed that the downstream neurons are indeed able to detect the signal as if the first neuron had fired action potentials naturally. Awesome. But this was just the first step, right? We can learn a lot from studying neurons in a dish, but what's actually interesting is trying to use optogenetics to look at circuits in whole animals. That's right. And the first study showing that channel rhodopsin could be used in an animal actually happened pretty soon after, also in 2005. A group led by Nagel and Alexander Gottschuk used a small transparent worm called C. elegans, where they put channel rhodopsins in neurons that were known to be involved in sensing touch. This ability helps the worms to avoid danger by withdrawing or running away when they get jostled or poked. And when the scientists activated the touch neurons with light, the worms acted just like they had been touched, even though they hadn't been. That's so cool. You're saying that they showed that they could use light to activate neurons to hijack the normal function in a worm. They used light to trick the worm into thinking it was being poked. That's really cool for neurons you don't know about. And even cooler if you do it on neurons when you have no clue what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's what everyone's been trying to do since then. There's been an explosion of studies using optogenetics in all sorts of animals, including fruit flies, zebrafish, mice, and rats. And in more complicated brains, like in rodents, it's harder to do, but it can be done by packaging the channel rhodopsin into a virus and injecting the virus into a part of the brain they're interested in. The virus infects the neurons and inserts the channel rhodopsin gene into the genome, so it's as if the neurons originally came with this foreign gene. You can also attach a sequence called a promoter to the gene so that channel rhodopsin only gets introduced into the cells you're interested in. Then you can use fiber optics to get the light to the part of the brain with the channel rhodopsins. So finally, we can diffuse that crazy bomb with the appropriate tools. What have people done with this fine-tuned brain-turning-on superpower? I can give you two examples from some of the earlier studies. In 2007, a group in collaboration with Dyseroth used optogenetics in mice to stimulate part of the hypothalamus, which is like the thermostat that regulates a lot of essential processes in our body. They found that stimulating the set of neurons made it more likely for a sleeping mouse to wake up. Oh, that's adorable. To just wake up a sleeping mouse? That makes me really happy. Well, speaking of happiness, in 2009, Dyseroth's group stimulated a group of neurons that released dopamine. The happiness chemical. Yeah, so dopamine has to do with happiness or reward. So they would stimulate these neurons at certain times and not others, such as when the mice were in one chamber of a box, but not in another. Afterwards, these mice would choose to spend more time in the chamber where the dopamine neurons had been stimulated. You can't exactly ask a mouse which chamber they like better, so... Measuring how much time they spent in a chamber is the best readout of whether they have a preference or not. That's pretty cool that they taught a mouse to like a place by zapping his brain with light. But it seems like in a lot of these cases, the function of the neuron was already known, and they knew which neurons they wanted to stimulate. They were just checking things that they'd already figured out. Why should we bother doing these kind of optogenic experiments if we're not really learning new things? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, there were a lot of other research techniques in neuroscience, but they were much less specific or couldn't be used to show causation. 
For example, there were many experiments showing that breaking certain parts of the brain disrupted a certain behavior, but what we really want to know is which neurons are ultimately responsible. It's kind of like if you're at a concert and you find out either that the speakers are broken or that the band's flight was canceled. In both cases, you'll probably not be able to hear your favorite artist right away, but that doesn't mean the band and the speakers do the same thing. The speakers are important, but I think we can all agree that the musicians are the ones that actually make the music. So basically, optogenetics lets us figure out which parts of the brain are like the musicians and actually responsible for different behaviors, and therefore which parts of the brain we would actually want to manipulate to solve certain problems. Solve certain problems? You mean like we can actually use optogenetics to help people? Yeah, that's definitely the hope. So one recent example of a treatment that has already started clinical trials is for retinitis pigmentosa. Patients with this disease become blind because their rods and cones are slowly dying off, but the rest of the neurons in their eyes still work fine. So the goal is to put the channel rhodopsin gene in other neurons in the eye using viruses, the same way as in neuroscience research. Another example is a method to treat peripheral pain. There are other opsins that act in the opposite way from channel rhodopsin and can turn off neurons, and experiments in mice have shown that you can turn off pain neurons using these opsins. You might also think about future therapies for depression, PTSD, or other mental health disorders, which, even if they couldn't be treated by optogenetics, could be discovered through research using optogenetics. I'm sure if I told my mom I was working on clematomonas, a single cell algae, she would think I was wasting my time. But it's so important to have these kind of tools in your toolbox. If we couldn't use light to stimulate neurons, we wouldn't have these awesome ways to figure out how the brain works or how to even treat pains in people. Absolutely. There are a lot of cool tools out in nature waiting to be used, but we have to figure out what they are and how they work through basic research before we can even think about using them. Basically, we went from a little algae to controlling brains. But people definitely weren't thinking about controlling brains when they started looking at clematomonas, which is why we've got to just keep figuring out how things work for the sake of figuring out how they work. Sometimes they're useful, but they're almost always really, really cool. Thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Pang. And I'm Nikki Turan, and this has been Bench Time Stories. Benchtime Stories is recorded at KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM, with additional editing and production help from Francis Aguisanda, Ray Fuchsia, and Paul Bump, and the good folks at Stanford Science Blog, The Dish on Science. You can follow us on Twitter at BenchTimePod, on our Facebook page, Benchtime Stories, and on SoundCloud at Benchtime Stories. <laughs>